Again, it's going to be Luke 1, verses 26 through 45. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with, with her who, has, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when you, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kyle. Good morning. You know, there was a, there was a lot of laughter during that meet and greet time. That was, that was fun to watch. Not that I'm like creepily watching you guys. <laughs> Maybe I am. Uh, but no, it's really good to, it's really good to be with you guys. A warm welcome to any of you who may be new. We are in the third week of Advent. Uh, Advent literally means arrival of a notable person or event. And it's a season that, I mean, we're entering into a tradition the historic church has celebrated for close to 20 centuries, so quite a bit. And so we look back at Jesus' first advent when he became a human being on Christmas, and we look forward to his advent at the end, at a day we called the renewal of all things, the resurrection. And with those two arrivals, Advent also acknowledges the space in between. As our uh, worship leaders mentioned uh, during the call to worship, this space of waiting, often cold, dark, waiting. Uh, I recently saw this scene from, uh, from a great Christmas movie made in the 80s, great depending on, on who you ask. But it's a scene where uh, young Billy Pelter, he is walking uh, Kate home from her shift at Dory's Tavern. And it's an idyllic scene where Silent Night is, uh, you know, soundtracking the background, snow is falling, the uh, homes are arrayed with Christmas lights, and the streets are arrayed with Christmas carolers. And as Billy and Kate are, wa- are walking, Kate confesses to Billy that she doesn't celebrate Christmas. She talks about how the fact that many people get sad and depressed during Christmas time. And she says, quote, while everybody else is opening up their presents, uh, they are opening up their wrists. And it's, a, it's such a jarring line, right? Like the horrible poetry of it juxtaposed with the cozy Christmas scene in the background. And the, th- the thing is, is like that in large part is what Advent is supposed to help us do. Meaning 
it's important to stay in this period of waiting during Advent so that so that we can actually look at the sadness of the world and other people and in our own hearts so that the birth of Jesus means more than just a prompt to see loved ones and to wear comfy socks. Uh, but that it means something because Kate's right. We need saving. And Advent is supposed to help us see why we do. And what this scene also helps us get at is today we're looking at the theme of joy. Right? We've looked at hope, peace, and now joy. Next week we'll look at love. And that scene captures the complexity we often feel regarding joy in Christmas, right? Because on, on one side, you have people who are like Kate, and they're like, you know, it's, there are, people are really suffering, and to just tell people you need to have joy, like, that's actually, that can be a cruel ask of somebody. But then on the other end, you have people who, you know, all they want to do is see the warm, happy sentiment of Christmas, and they may say, well, no, it's, it's morbid to look at the darkness of life during Advent and Christmas time, and both miss the heart of Christmas. And so what we're going to look at today is what, do, what is Christmas joy, actually? And while today's sermon pr- won't be more on the practical side, while there is a lot of practical application to take away when you think about joy, it's, I, I hope today's message as we look at this passage helps you guys more just get a language and a framework for understanding Christmas joy and like how to, how to process it and how to live within it. So uh, in light of that, we'll look at, as we look at the story of Elizabeth and Mary, uh, we'll say, let's just say this, we'll say Christmas joy is uh, often quiet, grown with grief, and promise made personal. Okay, Christmas joy is often quiet, grown with grief, and promise made personal. Okay? Uh, So let's start with number one. Christmas joy is often quiet. And here we see this with Elizabeth. She is an old, grieving woman. And we know she's old and grieving because if you look at Luke, earlier in Luke Luke chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Luke writes this, And they, referring to Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, we're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So Elizabeth is old and her life has been one of wanting a child month after month for decades only to not have one. And infertility is a, it's a quiet isolating kind of grief that's really hard to appreciate unless you've walked through it. It's, it's a bit like a young child eagerly waiting their mom or dad to come home from work, thinking each passing car is them, eventually just to be told, hey kiddo, they're actually not coming home today. It, it's like waiting for a Christmas morning that, that never comes. And on top of the pain that she's experiencing, in her culture, it, it's multiplied because Uh, To be childless was viewed as a sign of God's judgment. And so in addition to pain, she has shame, knowing that people in her town are whispering behind her back, like, what has she and Zachariah done that's so secret and so bad only God knows about it? It's the pain of seeing another friend post a pregnancy photo to social media or invite her to a, you know, a a gender reveal party. And that, that complex melting pot of emotion where on the one hand you're genuinely happy for the, for your friend to have a child, but a deeper sadness that you won't have one of those photos or a party of your own. And this is where Elizabeth is, and yet 
what you see with Elizabeth is she doesn't fall into cynicism or like an ongoing anger that, 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 that never goes out. And we know this because, you know, so she's referred to in verse 6 as righteous before God, walking blamelessly. And so this word righteous, it doesn't just mean personal piety, but righteousness in the scriptures, it has this sense of rich, warm relationship with God and other people. So she's not checked out. She's serving in the temple, we're told. And you get the sense of, like, she is, she is there with her neighbors. She is the person people call when they want to just—they need a sounding board or they want to laugh with someone. So she's engaged, people, engaged with people. And then here in, in verses 39 through 45, when she celebrates with Mary, who's probably a teenager at the time, you don't get the sense that Elizabeth is like, finally, God, you know, it's about time you give me a child. Or she doesn't look at Mary and say, you know, Mary, you should be really grateful you get a child really early on. I had to wait until I'm basically checking into the nursing home. And what we see here with Elizabeth, it's a quiet joy. And this is the kind of joy that God and only God gives. And so she's a great picture of Christian joy. Christian joy, it's a joy that is often subdued. Okay, it's not often loud, but it's never extinguished. And at times it will burst forth, like you see with Elizabeth here. So it's a bit like the difference between, say, a, a fast-moving, shallow creek. You know, it, it's loud, it's fast, but shallow. And a, a river that it's quiet, it's slow-moving, but 500 feet deep. Okay, so you may, that's Christian joy. You may know people who are more like the bubbly creeks. Like, they're the life of the party. They're always projecting an upbeatness about them. But you get the sense that underneath, they're sad. Or maybe they're just, they're hiding something, even from themselves. Christian joy is the opposite. Okay, there's a, there's a sadness on time. And there should be as we walk with our Lord, opening ourselves up to the hurt of the world. But underneath, at the center, is, is, is joy. That, that doesn't go out, right? Because it's the joy that only God can give because we know that God is with us and he's written our story, which includes the renewal of all things. And so what's, a, what's an application of this, as it were? I, I think number one, just for those of you who maybe have a more subdued temperament, you know, while cynicism is not a, a biblical virtue, uh, sometimes in Christian circles, or maybe not Christian circles, like, or maybe you just tell yourself, like, if I'm a Christian or if I'm just you know, like a person who should be somebody people admire, like I should have this bubbliness about me, and you just need to be comforted that that's okay. If, if your joy is more subdued, you could even say there's a Christ-centeredness to that. Uh, but also, as we think about this quiet joy that's more sustaining and enduring, this is why growing in communion with God is so important. We talked about this at our member gathering last week. We'll be focusing on this at the start of the next year. Growing in, a, growing in awareness of Christ's immediate presence with you. It's not just because that's what good church people do, but it's because it's only through that, actually knowing Christ as a living presence, that you get this quiet joy, and it's only the quiet joy that can sustain you. And you see that with with Elizabeth. She does have the bubbly, fast-moving creek joy with, with Mary, and that's good, right? But it's the quiet joy that helps her not become jaded. It helps her remain engaged and in, 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 in loving relationship. We need the quiet joy for winter. In, in springtime, it's easy to celebrate when you get the job, when you get engaged, when you take the fun trip. And it's good to celebrate these things. But we need the quiet joy for winter when the phone call comes and when your story doesn't go 
as you hoped. And, you know, I, I recently, I, I know a lot of you saw an example of this in Tim Keller when, you know, he's an old pastor who passed away this past spring. And he was in his early 70s. He was hoping for, you know, he seemed very healthy. And he, he was looking forward to a couple more decades to see his grandchildren grow up and to enjoy those years with his wife after, you know, he would say he spent way too much time in his early years with work. And then suddenly he has a couple years left to live. And in his final recorded words, uh, we, we hear that what he said was, you know, I'm thankful for the years God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. Like that joy-filled hope while acknowledging the pain that I'm reading Tim's biography right now, like that came from years of communing with God amid some really low lows of family life and, and, and church life. Okay, so that, that's number one. The Christmas joy that God gives us, right, beginning with the incarnation at Christmas, it's often quiet. Okay, because it's often quiet, sometimes we tend to miss it. Okay, or we don't appreciate it when we have it. Okay, so number one, Christmas joy is often quiet. Number two, Christmas joy is grown with grief. And so if uh, we looked at, so we looked at an old grieving uh, Elizabeth, right? And now we look at a young, skeptical teenager, Mary. And we know she's a bit skeptical because when the angel shows up and says, greetings, O favored one, right? You're a virgin, but you're now pregnant with the Most High. She doesn't say, oh, sweet Merry Christmas to me. Like Clay Aiken one day is going to write a song about me. No, she, she, she starts off, she's intensely rational and she's skeptical. Here in verse 29, when it says she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, in the original language, it, 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 it means to, to be rational or to make an audit. It's like, mm, you seem kind of fishy, Mr. Angel. Like, I need to see your paperwork. Like, she's an IRS agent, like, examining his tax return from the last, from the last decade, decade or so. So people in the first century, they're not gullible people just ready to believe anything supernatural that they think they see or hear. Like, she knows how making babies work. She hasn't done the baby-making thing. So she's like, how could I be pregnant, let alone pregnant with God's favored one? So, and as we look at her story, if Elizabeth is grieving because she wasn't pregnant, Mary is now grieving because she is pregnant. Because in her culture, to be a virgin or to, or to become pregnant out of wedlock, this was punishable by death via public stoning. So she's looking at this probability in her future, but or at best she's going to experience social alienation. And there's this place in Mark chapter 6 where you see Jesus go back to his hometown, and his hometown's rejecting him. And the townspeople say, isn't this the son of Mary? That's weird in a patriarchal culture to identify him as his mother's son. But you kind of get the sense of what they're getting at is like, well, we know he's Mary's son, but and we know she says that Joseph is the dad, but like, you know, we all know. And so this is what Mary's facing. So intense grief because of what's going to happen. But yet then, and this wasn't in our reading, but right after the reading in verse 46, she composes a song called the Magnificat. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, verse 46. In the beginning of verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Because while she's grieving, she also has the joy that somehow God's, God's cosmic and personal promises are being fulfilled in my body right now somehow. And so she has grief Enjoy, and, and this dynamic will follow Mary for her entire life. Uh, Kelsey and I were talking about this recently, and more so Kelsey because she just she appreciates this better than 
uh, than I can. But she was basically saying, you know, I mean, imagine Mary. So this is the boy. She is going to nurse. She is going to hold his hand as he takes his first step. She's going to hold him at night when he wakes up with nightmares. She's going to pack his lunches. She's going to watch him eventually set off on his own. And then because she is the mother of the Son of God, she's also going to watch this same boy have nails driven to him on a cross and then lift it up for public shaming. And just as a mom. And yet that moment of her greatest heart-rending anguish is the very moment she'll find out she's witnessing her son securing the world's redemption and the redemption for his mother. Grief and joy. And this is how joy in our waiting until God renews all things works. We receive supernatural joy from heaven. And here I'm drawing from Tyler State, and he did a great sermon on this. We receive supernatural joy from heaven, but it grows in the same soil as as grief, like wheat and weeds together. And I think about, you know, just think about all the different places you can see this. Think about life in the church. Right? Someone in the church gives you a listening ear or holds your side in a moment. You really need it because you're about to give up hope. And then someone else in the church hurts you. Or in the church, you see, you meet somebody who's a newcomer, and then as you get to know them, you wonder how you could have ever lived life without them before. And then they move away, and you're wondering, how can I continue? But you're now different because of them in your life. Grief and joy. I think about when I entered ministry and I left my job and I was fundraising and we didn't even have like a big savings account to help pad us, but we were now in a period where there were months where we were five or $6,000 per month underneath what we needed for our food and then a lot of medical expenses we were facing. And then a gift card to a grocery store for $300 just shows up anonymously under our door. And I see a friend for Christmas and he tells me he just received a big Christmas bonus for work and he wants to give it to us grief, and joy in the same soil. I think about a man in Kenya. He's on Renewal Project Africa's team, the team that I worked with this past summer. And he and his wife had just lost their two-year-old daughter because she drowned in a pool and they weren't paying attention. And he's just, he's describing this and and he's like, you know, he's he's in tears and he's never been in so much pain. And he's also saying, and yet, we know that Christ is with us and one day he's going to repair our hearts. Grief and joy. And so you see, joy, it's celebrating the new job. It's celebrating the fun trip. It's celebrating the engagement or the wedding. But joy, it's also Mary, okay, holding on to hope in the shadow of her son's cross. Joy is also a Kenyan man and woman who just lost their daughter, clinging to the promise of Christ's presence and that one day he'll wipe all their tears away. Grief and joy in the same soil. In fact, you could argue that joy isn't really joy if it's removed from the harsh realities of life. Okay, so this is is number two, okay? Joy and grief often grow in the same soil. They grow together. Okay, so Christmas joy often quiet. It's grown with grief. And number three, it's promise made personal. Promise made personal. So if you, uh, if you have your Bible and you look at 
the song Mary composes after she receives this news, there's sweeping language in it. So like when you look in the verse 52 to, uh, 50 to 52 range, you see God's mercy has given it from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 54, he's helped to serve in Israel, an entire nation. So it's these cosmic, like generational promises, right? From eternity past to eternity future. And also when you look at verse 48, she, she says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Personal pronouns. And so what allows Mary to have this joy that can cut through her fear, can cut through her grief, is the reality that the same God who has splintered and will splinter death has also made promises to her personally. And this is what makes that quiet joy and the joy that can grow with the weeds possible. It's when you get that the God, we looked at this last week, while he does, he has made very corporate, cosmic promises to renew all of creation and bring people groups together, he's also made personal promises to you. And he's not just loving in general or in principle, but when he looks at you, he delights in you in particular. It's the difference between me knowing that Kelsey is a loving person and like what happens more regularly than I would like, but it, it's also a gift is when we're in the kitchen and I have just blown it. And she looks at me and she says, Steve, I made a promise and I'm not going anywhere. Okay, now this is knowing she's loving, but now, okay, this is a promise made personal for me. And so this is why it's so important for when you engage with God, think about God, talk with God, why you, say th- why you need to say things like, and it, it can take time to, to learn to believe it. Learning to grow and wonder where you, where you tell him, I'm the one you'll never leave or forsake. I'm the prodigal child, right, who's distanced myself from you, from you and now you're just, you're waiting outside of your house longing to see me so that you can run to me and embrace me. I'm the one sheep that you run after to rescue in the dark. And it's why you also need to place yourself with Mary in the shadow of her son's cross as you look at Jesus and you say, you aren't just accomplishing redemption for the world and your mom, but you're accomplishing it for me. And I'm also the one, because of your death and because of your resurrection, you will personally wipe away every tear of mine, whether they're outside on my face or on the inside on my heart. And this is what you need, and it's what a fearful virgin needs in Nazareth, and it's what a grieving African mother and father need. That they need to know, and you need to know, Not just that you have a joy that's possible to be grown with grief, but also a personal promise from God that one day those weeds of grief will vanish and where all that's left is joy. Okay, so that Kate can say in that beginning scene, with truthfulness, Christmas is only a time where people are opening presents and we can sing Silent Night and drink hot chocolate. So the personal promise of Advent, it's, it's the promise that only joy will remain. And in the meantime, in this cold, dark space in between, we have Emmanuel, God with us, 
or God with me. It's John Mark McMillan's lyrics. Well, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a Savior who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye Olympus, the heart of my maker is spread out on the road, the rocks, and the weeds. Because while joy isn't really joy if it's removed from the harsh realities of life, God isn't really God if he's powerful enough to end evil but not loving enough to share in it with you. But that is God. And he is powerful enough and he is loving enough. And this gives you a joy. It may not be loud. It may often feel like grief is overpowering it, but it is a joy filled with glory. Let's pray.